As we gather together this morning, we continue in our series in the letter to the church in Colossae. We're still in the introduction of the letters. We saw last week, Paul starts off his letter in a typical way. All letters there in the first century were written. But as we also saw last week, that though these words might be typical of Paul's letter writing, they're also powerfully inspired word of God that was written to teach us about God and to challenge us to follow his plan for our lives. Is, is the will of God the overall occupation of your life? Is the family of God, with God as your father, and, and we as your brothers and sisters, an important relationship in your life? Does the word faithful describe your walk with Christ? And we saw that grace and peace are more than just kind words in a, in a greeting they're two of the most important words of all of Christianity that lead us to a real substantive relationship with God. We come today to the part of the introduction where he recounts his thankfulness for the believers in Colossae. Paul continues with this typical introduction of his letter. After the greeting comes the thanksgiving. For example, to the believers in Rome, Paul said in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. To the believers in Corinth, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace that God was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. To the believers in Ephesus, Paul said in Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the believers in Philippi, Paul said in Philippians 1, 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And to the believers in Colossae, turn in your Bibles there to Colossians chapter 1, and starting at verse 3, we'll look together at Paul's words of thanksgiving to the believers in Colossae. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Father, it is our ambition in these few moments for you to take your word, your powerful, perfect word, and, and for your spirit to grab that word and to infiltrate our hearts and lives, to teach us, to change us so that we might be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Well, I believe verse 5 hits on the central theme of Paul's thanksgiving, and that's the gospel. 
At the heart of what Paul is most thankful for is the gospel, the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, what it has done and what it is doing in the lives of the believers in Colossae. I think if we took a a close look at all of Paul's thanksgiving and all of his letters and all these different churches, thanksgiving for the gospel would be the main undercurrent binding them all together. If there is one thing that we should all be most thankful for in our lives, it's the gospel. Amidst all the ups and downs and the challenges of life, we should foremost remain thankful for the gospel in our lives. The gospel is that one fundamental truth that changes everything about us. Paul says in verse 5, that the gospel is the word of truth. One of the things Paul is emphasizing to the believers in Colossae is truth, teaching them the truth. As we shall see in upcoming sermons, they need to be reminded about what is the truth. Or perhaps we do too. In Ephesians 1:13, Paul said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. James 1.18 Of this, of his own accord and will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is the truth? The gospel is the word of truth. The whole Bible is the word of truth. What does word of truth mean? First, the word, word, right? Gospel means good news. And news is words. The gospel in actual events is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind and the vindicating, miraculous resurrection that proved it all to be true. The gospel communicated is the good news that Jesus in actuality, in reality, actually did those things for you and me and the whole world. See, to communicate the good news, we have to use words. God chose to reveal himself through words. Namely, the the collection of words that we call the Bible. God has revealed himself, his plan, his will, his mission through words. Propositional, verifiable, studyable, perfect words. The certainty, the reliability, the credibility of our faith doesn't lie in some personal experience. But it lies in words. Words that teach us the truth. Words that lead us to the truth. Words that tell us about our Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. Words that are 100% totally true, infallible, and inerrant. Words that tell us about Jesus. Anybody here want to know the truth? Anybody here want to know the truth about your identity? The truth of your purpose? The truth about relationships and everyday lives? You want to know the truth about eternity? Do you want to know the truth about the past and the present and the future? 
Do you want to know the truth about love and joy and peace and grace and sacrifice and forgiveness? Guess what? You can know the truth. You can know the truth because God has given us the word of truth. Folks, one of the greatest lies that our culture has been telling us for decades is that truth is whatever you want it to be. You can have your truth and I can have my truth, regardless of what is actually real, regardless of what is actually factual. Truth today is more based on our feelings than on reality. Folks, the truth of, the fruit of that lie is coming to harvest in our culture like never before. Family and marriage and identity and sexuality and race and gender issues are fracturing our society and shattering into millions of different individual preferences of their own truth. And in the midst of it all, what has been lost? Truth. Truth has been lost. As never before, we need to be people of grace and love. And as never before, in our culture, we need to be people of truth. Not my truth. Not your truth, but the truth. The word of truth. The gospel. The Bible. Paul wanted everyone in Colossae to know that the gospel is not just some message from some faraway religious leader. No, the gospel is the word of truth. As he says in verse 6, the gospel is the very grace of God in truth. So let's take a few moments this morning and review the gospel. What is it? What is the gospel? A great way to summarize the gospel, a great way to prepare yourself to be able to share the gospel is just thinking about through the main characters of the message of the gospel. The four main characters of the gospel is God, mankind, Jesus, and you. So the first person we talk about in our presentation of the gospel is God. God is what? God is holy. God is perfect. God is love. God is the creator. And as creator, he holds us accountable. God is the creator of all things. Holds his creation accountable. He's perfectly pure and holy and loving. This God of ours is described for us in Revelation 4.11 where it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message you've heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Romans 14.12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, God, holy, pure, creator, holds us accountable. Who's the, the next character in our gospel message is mankind. Mankind is what? Mankind is sinful. This reveals the problem, right? Mankind is sinful by nature and by choice. God is pure and holy and holds us accountable for our sinful choices. The presence of sin in our lives has alienated us from a holy God, from a pure God, and has subjected us to his judgment. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. Romans, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, you and me, all of mankind, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, physical death, and spiritual separation from God. Next character, mankind. What is it? Sinful. Who's the next person we talk about in sharing the gospel message? Jesus. Jesus is what? Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who bridges that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. We need someone to help us to be reconciled to God. And only Jesus could be and was that one. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's judgment for our sins. He rose again so that all who would trust in him, so that all who would believe in him, would have eternal life. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. John 3.16, that most famous verse, For God to love the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus, the Savior, the sacrifice, the bridge that makes it possible to have a relationship with God. Who's the last character in a gospel message? You and me. And what are are we left to do? We're left to choose. Now God leaves the choice to you. God calls us, everyone, everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Jesus himself said in Mark 1.15, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, with a mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the gospel message. This is the truth that has radically changed our lives. This is it, folks. Simple, profound, beautiful, clear, and so special. Romans 3 says of us, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, the fundamental reality of God's perfection and God's ultimate holiness with the fundamental reality of our sinfulness and our ultimate depravity points us to the central truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ. 
It is God's holiness and our sinfulness that clearly defines the problem that all people are in. We need the bridge. We need someone to come between us and God. If you can be good enough to get to heaven, then what's the reason for Jesus? If you've been good enough on your own way to earn your way to heaven, then Jesus' death is a scam. It's a farce. If you can be good enough in your own efforts, then Jesus is totally unnecessary. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 clearly teaches us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. No one can do this. It's only the gift of God. It's only by grace through faith. There is no amount of good behavior that you could ever do to ever earn your spot in heaven. It's impossible. It's like trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. But God loves us. He didn't leave us at one side of the Grand Canyon with this impossibility. He didn't leave us without hope. But he took the initiative. He took the action. He made the way. He bridged the gap. He sent his son. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the very love of God that dealt with our sins. It's the love of God that sent Jesus to die as a payment, as an acceptable offering for our sins, so that, as we put our faith in him, so that we can realize in the most deep and powerful ways the real love of God. Folks, we must stand strong on the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scripture. We must herald throughout our home and throughout our community this most important reality. John Newton, that famous slave boat captain turned preacher, the writer of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, once said, I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That is good news. That's great news. That, that's the gospel. And that's the truth. God, creator, holy, holds us accountable. Mankind, sinful, separated from God. Jesus, the sacrifice, the Savior, the bridge. And you and me, choose, believe, follow. Has this gospel changed your life? Do you believe it? Do you believe it with all your heart? If not, even right now, today could be your day to make the choice to follow God. Right now, you can pray. God, I, I know you're holy. I know I'm a sinner. God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and I choose you. God, mankind, Jesus, you, the gospel, right now, as you're sitting there, 
with your eyes wide open, staring up at me, you can have the greatest life change in your life right now by choosing Jesus Christ and the gospel. This is the gospel. We need to know it. We need to live it. We need to share it. That is what Paul is so thankful for. That is what we are so thankful for because it has made all the difference in our lives. Next, we see what the gospel is doing. First, we see what the gospel is doing there in, the Col- in, in Colossae. Verse 5 tells us that the ground cause, the root of their faith, love, and hope is when they heard the word of truth. The gospel has brought them faith, love, and hope. When Paul is praying for them, his, his first prayer of, of thanksgiving for them is because of their response to the gospel. First, he thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. I love how Peter describes the, the faith of those he's writing to in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith, as Hebrews 11:1 1 describes it, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is, though we have never seen him, we love him. Though though we've never seen him, we believe in him. We rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible because of our faith in him. Faith is seeing the eternal with spiritual eyes. Faith is believing that the invisible realities of life are more important than the visible realities of life. 2 Corinthians 4.18 points us that way where it says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They had never seen Jesus, but they loved Him. They believed in Him. They rejoiced with joy inexpressible in Him. That's us. That's faith. Paul was also thankful for how the gospel had changed their lives, making loving a priority of their lives. As Jesus said in John 13, love is one of the foremost distinguishing marks of a true follower of Christ. Our love for Christ starts by faith, is lived by faith, and is walked out, fleshed out by love, biblical love. Love is focused on the best action for the other person. Love is not a feeling. Biblical love is not based on our feelings, but it's based on our commitment to action. Biblical love is alive with joy and sacrifice, with delight and bearing one another's burdens, with gratitude and speaking the truth in love. Paul is thankful that their biblical love extended to all the saints, to all believers, to everyone in their church, to all believers outside of their church. Because true, biblical, Jesus-type love is totally free of any prejudice. True, biblical, Jesus kind of love is totally free of any preference. True, biblical, Jesus kind of love, the kind that's supposed to distinguish us as followers of Christ, is to be freely given to all. Another reason Paul is thankful for them is because of the hope that's laid up for them in heaven. 
In Ephesians 1, Paul uh, details this hope. He says, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul here as well in this passage connects the gospel of our salvation, the word of truth, with our hope in Christ. What is our hope? Ephesians tells us that our hope is a guarantee. It's not a maybe. It's not a could be. Our hope is a certainty. Our hope is laid up for us in heaven. It's the surety of our salvation. Our hope is our eternal inheritance as children of the Father, sealed forever by the power of the Holy Spirit. The hope laid up for us in heaven is our certainty. As Peter put it, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. One commentator wrote, Faith is the soul looking upward to God. Love looks outward to others. And hope looks forward to the future. Faith rests upon the past work of Christ. Love works in the present. And hope anticipates the future. What is the gospel brought to the Colossians? A faith in Jesus Christ that's real and substantive. What's the gospel brought to the, to the Colossians? A love for one another that is active and powerful, that's bearing one another's persons. What is the gospel brought to the Colossians? A hope, a surety, a certainty in the completion of their salvation that's laid up for them in heaven. Has the gospel done that for you? Is that how you describe what the gospel has done in your life? Do you have a faith that looks up forward to Christ? Do you have a, a, a love that looks outward towards others? Do you have a hope and the surety of heaven? But the gospel just wasn't so powerful among them. No, no Paul next mentions that this same gospel, this very gospel that is changing them, is changing the whole world. Verse 6 says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. Jesus said, as recorded in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's exactly what was happening. The gospel is being proclaimed more and more, exponentially spreading from country to country. In Colossians 1, 23, Paul says the hope of the gospel is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Everywhere the gospel goes, it bears fruit. Everywhere the gospel goes, it makes an impact, an eternal impact. From missionary story after missionary story, from every continent and country, the gospel is a force that cannot be stopped. Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Think about that now. Think about that statement. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Nothing can stop the power of God. Today, this very day, thousands of people all around our globe are experiencing the power of God and coming to salvation. The power of God is active and changing lives right now. And folks, guess what? We're part of the winning team. And we didn't even have to take the field. All we have to do is proclaim the victory that Jesus Christ has already won. All we have a responsibility to do is to share the good news. Jesus has won. We are slaves no more. He has conquered hell and death and sin and separation from God through his death on the cross and by his powerful, vindicating resurrection. Beloved, the power of the gospel has absolutely nothing to do with you. The power of the gospel has nothing to do with your presentation. The power of the gospel has nothing to do with our artful persuasion. The power of the gospel lies in the very proclamation of the gospel itself. The very words of the gospel itself are powerful. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Neither one of us has ever saved anybody. You can't. We're powerless. The gospel is not. The gospel is the power of God. The best we can do is to lead someone to the Savior. The best we can do is to show them the way to the way, the truth, and the life. The best we can do is to proclaim the gospel. All the rest is God's responsibility. Paul you know, details this well for us in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See, the planter and the waterer is nothing. Only God gets the credit for the growth. The germination of the gospel in the soul of an unbeliever is solely the work of God. But we get to sow the seed. See, we get to proclaim the gospel. We get to water the seed. We get to live the gospel. We get to fertilize the seed. We get to share the gospel and to, and to love people. But it's only God who can make it grow. It's only God who can bring the increase. It's only God who can make the gospel bear fruit. This truth should give us such freedom. Such passion, such encouragement. And this, this truth illustrates our last point. What are we supposed to do with the gospel? We're supposed to be like Epaphras and share the gospel. We're supposed to proclaim to those around us what Jesus has done for us and what he wants to do for them. See, we have this tendency in our culture to professionalize everything. From the car mechanic we go to, to the doctor we see, we want the most qualified, specialized person to deal with us and our stuff. This culture of professionalism, this, this let's get the expert to do it mentality, even infiltrates the church. My church in Columbus, which had many up-and-coming business professionals, you know, one of the issues we regularly had to deal with these professionals was that they wanted to lead. They wanted to be in charge. But they didn't want to serve. They would think, well, I have all this training. I oversee this, 
major portion of, of my company's business. I direct millions upon millions of dollars of my, my company's assets. I make tons of money. Obviously, I'm ready to just walk in and leave. Jesus, our example, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, what did he do? He came to serve, not be served. What did he come in? He came in humility. He came to give and to sacrifice. See, the church doesn't work like the American culture works. The church doesn't follow a business model. The church follows its head, Jesus Christ, its leader, and does what Jesus does. The only way to become a leader in a church is to serve. We would tell these business professionals, what you need to do is volunteer. Come help out in the nursery. Come help teach an elementary Sunday school class. Come serve the kids in Bible club. Help uh, with the grounds or, or building maintenance. Use your gifts that God has given you to serve in the church. One of the wealthiest men I've ever known took his turn on the rotation and mowing the church lawn there in Columbus. Serve the youth and help teach an adult Sunday school class. That man, through his service, rose to the bottom of the church, becoming a lay leader, serving even more, sacrificially serving the church. You see, church works all opposite. In, in, the, in the American culture, when you, when you get in business, you rise up and more people serve you. Not so in the church. And the church is flipped totally around. In the church... The more you serve, the further you go down, and the more people you serve. So what am I trying to say? We need to embrace the fact that the church doesn't work like any other institution in our world. Why? Because Jesus is the head. And because you're the church. It's not professionals. It's all of our responsibilities to serve Christ by serving in His church. It's all of our responsibilities to proclaim the gospel, the good news to our family, friends, and neighbors. No one is exempt from serving Christ. No one is exempt from sharing Christ with our community. The church is not the place where we hire professionals to do the work. The church is the place where we all gather together to serve one another where we encourage each other, where we help each other in sharing the truth of the gospel. You know, there would be no letter to the Colossians if there was no person named Epaphras. He wasn't a professional. He wasn't some great apostle. He was just a guy that was so changed by the truth of Jesus Christ in his life that he went back to his hometown and he told everybody about it. He told everybody, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's how the church literally changed the world. It wasn't a market strategy. It wasn't an effective business model. It wasn't well-trained professionals. It was followers of Jesus Christ, humbly serving. It was just a regular, everyday believer like you and me, living out the gospel 
proclaiming the gospel to the people in their lives. Think about it. We're just regular believers. We're never going to get written down in the annals of Christian history of these great leaders. And guess what? That's exactly what God wants. That's his plan. God wants to use us, regular, everyday believers, to live his gospel and to proclaim his gospel. So don't complicate it. Make it very simple. Just share what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus is doing for you in your life with those around you. Guess what? You can do that. We can do that. Let's pray. So, Father, at this moment, we want to resonate with Paul and his thankfulness and just come before you and say, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus who's made, made all the difference in our lives. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the fruit of the gospel in our lives, faith, love, and hope. And Lord, we pray that we would be not only so changed by the gospel in our own lives, that we would be not only so changed by the gospel to be in church and be a servant in church, we would be so changed by the gospel that when we bump into people in our lives, Jesus spills out. May it be so for me, for us. In Jesus' name, amen.